You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So, unless you've been living under a rock for the last few weeks or vacationing in Tahiti, you're probably already aware that across the United States, there are a number of large labor disputes going on. As of this past weekend, Hollywood is essentially shut down due to strikes involving a couple of hundred thousand members of the Writers Guild of America and now the Actors Union, SAG-AFTRA. And... This is the first time in over 60 years that those two unions have gone out on strike together. In addition, within the next two weeks, we may be seeing the largest private sector single employer work stoppage if the Teamsters take their 340,000 members out on strike at UPS. Well, I thought it would be interesting to do an episode about labor disputes in general and the law overall as they relate as it relates to labor disputes. However, rather than me doing a lecture about the law, I thought it would be more entertaining for you if I were to have a conversation with a long-standing labor lawyer who can walk us through all the different nuances with regard to the National Labor Relations Act as it pertains to labor disputes. Joining me today is Mark Keenan. He is a partner with the law firm Barnes & Thornburg and is based in their Atlanta office. Now, Mark and I go back many years, and he is an excellent resource for a conversation about labor disputes. So here is Mark Keenan. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Mark Keenan, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. And as I hit the record button um, just prior to, we've known each other for a very long time. Yes, we have Peter. It's always good to see you, but uh, we were just reminiscing before you hit the record button that our uh, first work together, I think, was when my son was born. So that's taken us all the way back to 2005. Yeah. So uh, I thought we could do like a generic or general soup to nuts on labor disputes. As you've probably seen in the headlines, we've got the actors and the writers out on strike in Hollywood. The UPS may be going out on strike or the Teamsters at UPS in the next couple of weeks. Um, the UAWs coming out there may be going out on strike. There's a lot of stuff going on. And I thought maybe for the listeners who are not familiar with labor relations, we could kind of go through generally labor disputes and the legalities of what happens during labor disputes. That'd be great. I may have seen a headline or two about a couple of those labor yeah. disputes you referenced. Yeah, they're, they are all over the place these days. And um, so without going too deep into like the unknowns, like we don't know that UPS is going to go out on strike, but we both probably remember back in 97, they were out there with 185,000 strikers for about three weeks. And then, yep. This time it's bigger because UPS has grown with 340,000. So, and then, and this kind of dovetails into some of it. Um, Sean O'Brien, the president of the Teamsters over the weekend, said that he has asked the White House not to intervene if they go out on strike. Yet, yeah, we can get into Taft-Hartley and all that sort of stuff. Sure. No, I'm 
saw that article as well, and that actually made me flash back to the 97 strike because I don't think it got a lot of publicity, but UPS was still really big, as you know, back in 97 as well, and they had made the request for Clinton to intervene, the business community, and he declined to do that during that strike. Right. So Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act gives workers the right to engage in protected concerted activities. And among that is strikes, walking off the job. Correct. So pre-NLRA, National Labor Relations Act, passed in 1935, called the Wagner Act. Um, Prior to the passage of the Wagner Act, labor unions had a long history um, with some hostility from the court system in particular, for example, engaging in a strike. So employers would use strike breakers or get injunctions to make that type of activity uh, cease. And the Wagner Act, with Section 7, as you just referenced, recognized the right to strike as one of workers' rights to engage in protected concerted activity. So, Mark, let me ask you, and this is um, an issue that HR folks or management folks don't necessarily realize, but the right to strike also includes, people just think that applies only to unions, but it also includes non-union people, right? That's correct. Over the various Democratic administrations, um, the NLRB has typically gone on uh, what I'll call a little bit of a publicity tour because they want non-union employees to understand that as a federal agency, even though a union's not involved, they still have rights under the National Labor Relations Act. But Section 7, as you talked about, doesn't talk about being in a union. It talks about employees, regardless of whether they're union or union-free, having the right to engage in protected concerted activity. And that's where the concept ultimately of strike comes in. Um, Strike is a basic form of protected concerted activity, which we would typically define as two or more employees engaging in some type of a protest over their wages, hours, or terms and conditions of employment, which are really broad terms. We saw a little bit of it actually during the COVID pandemic, where you'd have a group of folks that were considered essential workers, and they walked off the job because they thought they were entitled to some type of hazard pay or they wanted better safety protection. So a group of employees, even if you don't have a union, walking off the job, no union, no picket line, you're not throwing nails in the driveway or anything like that. But those employees, even though they don't have a union, are considered strikers because they've walked off the job and are withholding their labor in protest of something. Right. And the, and the protected part comes in, um, workers can't be fired for that, right? That's correct. But it doesn't mean that an employer has to stop operating. Correct. The... Uh, <laughs> One of the good things about being a labor lawyer is the uh, nuances of federal labor law. So an employer cannot fire a striker, but strikers can be permanently replaced. Um, so I'm past 30 years of practice now, I've always tried to figure out the difference between the two. There is a legal distinction. If you are a striker and you're permanently replaced, you have a right to go on a preferential recall list if and when the strike ends. Um, so if your permanent replacement leaves your position, the employer is supposed to go through the recall list before they would hire somebody off the streets. But that essentially is the difference between being fired and being permanently replaced. And that's, that's for economic strikers. Correct. Right. What, so with, 
workers who go out on strike over, quote, unfair labor practices, they become known as unfair labor strike, uh, unfair labor practice strikers. What is the difference between replacements there? That's a really good question. Um, most of federal labor law is defined by decisions issued by the National Labor Relations Board. So there's a lot of jurisprudence. Um, they're a little bit of a different animal compared to other federal agencies because they don't typically issue new regulations. You find out about change in the law or change in the interpretation of the law by going and reading one of their decisions. But long ago, the Labor Board wanted to give protections to people that they considered unfair labor practice strikers, and that is a striker that has walked off the job in protest of the employer's alleged unfair labor practices, and that's what's dictating it, as opposed to an economic striker, which is striking over, usually at the bargaining table, but it doesn't have to be that, but something related, again, to those broad terms, wages, hours, terms, and conditions of employment. So economic strikers, the employer has the right to permanently replace economic strikers, unfair labor practice strikers, because the workers are supposedly striking to protest an employer's alleged unlawful acts, the employer can only hire temporary replacements for them. And temporary replacements have to go out the door um, the minute the strike is resolved. So if um, if I recall, there's no definition to temporary replacements in terms of if a strike were to go on for six months or a year and it's an unfair labor practice strike, yes, the replacements have to go away once the strike is declared over or the union gives an unconditional return to work, right? Sure. But there's no definition, you know, when you say temporary, it's not necessarily two days or five days or whatever. That's correct. So no one ever knows how long a strike, whether it's an economic or an unfair labor practice strike is going to last. But usually the employer packages the employment offered to a temporary or permanent replacement as specifically setting forth whether they're being brought on as a permanent replacement or a temporary replacement. There's one other little nuance that we should probably at least cover in connection with that because it is a favorite tactic of unions. Um, strikes really fell out of favor for a long time, but there's been a significant uptick. And strike activity, particularly in the last year, you probably saw the headlines referring to striketober mm -hmm. back last fall. Um, but an economic strike can actually be converted into an unfair labor practice strike, which unions would typically like to do because that gives more protections to the striking employees. They can't be permanently replaced. And the labor board has a whole set of factors they look at as to whether or not an unfair labor practice charge was actually filed filed, whether or not it seems to have merit, and whether that did seem to be a contributing or an exacerbating factor in the strike continuing. But if, if an economic strike was found to be converted to a ULP, unfair labor practice strike, then the job rights of the strikers are going to change. Right. Let me ask you, and this is, I'm specifically thinking of a strike that just ended this year that was a two-year strike um, in Alabama. And is the United Mine Workers at a mine in Alabama made a lot of headlines. Yep. The the company, I'm trying to think of the name off the top of my head, but the company did not permanently replace those strikers. It was a two-year strike. There's been some 
fighting over the return to work of some of the strikers. Some of them were fired for unlawful activity, um, which we can touch on in a second. But my question is, if you're not permanently replacing a workforce, and let's say there's 500 people that went out, and over the course of two years, and this is, again, hypothetical, if there's less need for those workers to come back, say only you need 300 of them left, yeah, or three, there's work enough for enough of 300 employees. I'm mispronouncing this, but um, in any case, do the 200 need to come back if it's an unfair labor practice strike or can the, the employer downsize? The employer does have the right to downsize. It's a interesting and a, a good question. Um, there was an international paper decision back in the sort of mid nineties when um, what was then the United Paper Workers and International Paper were really loggerheads. And IP ended up permanently replacing a number of employees. But during the labor dispute, they also brought in some subcontractors and they realized some economic savings by virtue of using those subcontractors. And so across the bargaining table, while the strike was going on, IP ended up making some proposals to reduce the workforce and they were going to subcontract it. Not surprisingly, they didn't reach agreement with the union in the middle of a strike on whether or not they could subcontract that work. The union ended up filing charges saying that that subcontracting was unlawful. Uh, I think the labor board originally found that the conduct was unlawful, but the court of appeals said it was perfectly lawful and they did everything appropriately. They brought in subcontractors, which an employer has the right to do. An employer has the right during a strike to maintain its operations. And we can talk about what some of those options are, but one of those options was to subcontract the work, realized economic savings, it was not unlawfully motivated, they weren't out to do it just to get back at the union or to get back at the employees, they actually had demonstrated economic savings as a result of that, made the proposals across the bargaining table, which is exactly what you're supposed to do with your union in terms of bargaining in good faith, reached impasse and they had the right to implement that. I wonder if that would fly today with the uh, current labor board. That's uh, one of the interesting, I'm sure you've seen it on your end, the interesting part of labor law is how the interpretation of a statute that's been around for coming up on 100 years, um, the interpretation definitely changes depending on whether it's a Democratic labor board or a Republican labor board. Right. There's there's another thing that um, with regard to strikes that I've seen over the last decade or so that started out in the in the healthcare industry with hospitals, and those are known as quickie strikes. With the nurses, for example, CNA I think started this a lot, um, SEIU, a couple others, but they would take workers out for one day, then send them back the next day or two days later, and we're starting to see this kind of like go into other industries as well. Yep. Uh, I think a few of those, what you would call quickie legal term for that, we would use an intermittent strike. Um, Walmart faced it. I think a few of the Starbucks locations have unionized uh, mm-hmm. have tried that same tactic. Um, technically not unlawful, but if the employer can actually prove it is a true intermittent strike, which it would be a pattern of, Two weeks of work, all of a sudden you go out for one day, then another two weeks of work, you go out for two days. But the employer can prove that it is, in fact, an intermittent strike. That activity becomes unprotected under federal labor law, and you would actually have the right to fire the strikers. 
So we need to distinguish, I think, the right to strike is protected generally, but there are certain tactics um, that are either illegal or convert the strike into unprotected. And if a court or the labor board were to declare a strike unprotected activity, the employer has the right to terminate those. Picket line misconduct is the most common example, throwing rocks at the trucks or they see somebody spreading nails in a driveway. Um, that's the type of activity that can get you fired. Um, sit down strike where you're actually at your workstations and just refusing to work or refusing to leave the facility. That would be unprotected and an intermittent strike would fall into that as well. So the, the 1937 GM sit down strike would probably be declared unlawful today. That is correct. Or at least That's unprotected. Interesting. Right. Interesting. Um, that kind of, so you talk about picket line misconduct. So let me ask you a question. I know the answer to this firsthand, but, you know, when you drive by a strike that's going on and people are going around in circles in driveways, and what happens if they stop while they're making their little circles in driveways? Yep. Uh, another really good question. Um, as we talked about a few minutes earlier, the employer does have the right to continue its operations. So strikers have the right to pick at the property, but they cannot block what we would call the, the fancy legal term ingress and egress to the facility. Um, so just vehicles exiting or entering. So placement workers have the right to cross the picket line. Managers have the right to cross the picket line to continue operations. And if the picketers are slowing or stopping in the driveway and blocking the ability to get in and out of that facility, that potentially opens the door for the employer going in and getting a court injunction, either minimizing the number of picket line people, usually would include a specific order that they can't block entering or exiting the facility. But yeah, the whole purpose of the strike is to interrupt the employer's operations. So not surprisingly, the strikers aren't working. They're not getting their paychecks. So they're frustrated, potentially being whipped up by other emotions, maybe from the union itself. And frustrations are running pretty high, so they want to do everything in their power without getting into too much trouble to try to make the employer cease its operations. And that's one of the more common tactics. But usually, if it is happening and it's on a repeated basis, the employer has some remedies available in the court system. And as an employee or striker, were you to block ingress and egress that's potentially cause for termination. In other words, you may not come back to work after the strike, right? Correct. Yeah. My, my firsthand knowledge of that came when I was 21 and we were involved with a nationwide strike and we had the driveways into the plant. And so I happened to stop in the middle of the ingress <laughs> and I had a police <laughs> officer politely say, if you don't get moving, I'm going to arrest you. So that's how I learned that. But. Yep. Well, again, the we grew up in a, a similar era. Strikes were a lot more common, 60s mm -hmm. and 70s. And some of your listeners may recall then that we had the air traffic controller strike back in the early 80s. And President Reagan, they were all federal employees under a different statute, but he ended up firing all the air traffic controllers and bringing in replacement workers. 
And, and that really led to a little bit of a sea change in terms of employers' responses to a strike because it's sort of green-lighted along with the Reagan administration generally that employers could, in fact, more aggressively use the weapons that they've had since the late 1930s. You just didn't hear a lot about permanent replacements earlier times. Um, a lot more employers started using permanent replacements in the 80s and 90s, and that really raised the stakes for a union in terms of its calculus as to whether or not a strike makes sense. Yeah, you mentioned the late 30s. That was a Supreme Court decision that um, allowed employers to permanently replace, right? Correct. That yeah. was, uh, I think, McKay Radio in 1938. Yep. Yeah. A lot of folks don't realize that. Um, and I, by that, I'm talking mostly employees, which is who I deal with a lot. But they don't understand that, you know, okay, A, you do have the right to go out on strike. It does not mean that the employer has to capitulate. And you can also be replaced, whether it's temporary or permanent, if it's an economic strike. Sure. And you, you and I have both um, been involved in union organizing campaigns. And unfortunately, I don't want to say there's a lot of misinformation about it. I think it's simply an unknown to a lot of employees because it's not something where unions really want to publicize or advertise. But fundamentally, employees always have the right to join a formal labor organization, um, but they need to know exactly what it is, which labor organization, what's their history, what's their track record bargaining. Lots of collective bargaining, you reach a contract and there is no labor dispute. But when push comes to shove, if the employer is digging in its heels on, bar on its bargaining proposals and the union is doing the same thing, I think the Teamsters actually have a strike manual. It says the first thing the union needs to do is assess its bargaining power. And bargaining power is based on can the union, if you are not able to reach a successful collective bargaining agreement, you're going to try to force the employer to agree to its demands. You have to know whether or not by way of a strike, you have the effective means of shutting down that employer because that is the only way the union ultimately has bargaining power at the bargaining table. Yeah, that um, I'm trying to recite it off the top of my head. I think it says the union's bargaining power depends on three main elements, the right to strike, the ability to strike effectively, and the employer's ability to withstand a strike. I think you summarized it very accurately. I'm pretty sure that's the quotes, yep. but I'll have to look that up when we're done. Um, so that, that kind of begets another question. So union goes out on strike. Um, employers also have options with regard to labor disputes. And it's kind of the other side of a strike. That's lockouts. And a lot of employees don't understand how those work as well. But an employer's got the ability to lock out its unionized workers, but they just don't have the right to permanently replace locked-out workers, that's right? Correct. That's the biggest difference between striking a lockout. If you're, from the employee's perspective, it probably looks like the same thing. You are no longer reporting to work. You're not getting your paycheck. Um, but the employer is sort of forcing you to withhold your labor, so to speak. Uh, you don't see lockouts as common. Uh, as a weapon, but it has always been a weapon. I'll say always has been a weapon in the employer's toolkit. But the one clear distinction between a strike and a lockout is if the employer is locking out the employees. 
which it might use to either protect the property. Uh, some unions time a strike. Perishable food business would be a good example. Some unions try to time their strike at a time where they know it's a critical period in that employer's operation. The lockout gives the employer the ability to say, no, we're not just going to wait for you to walk out. We're going to decide when the employees are no longer working at a time that's advantageous to us. But it is a pretty powerful weapon. So the big limitation is you can only use temporary replacements in an actual lockout. Right. But like temporary replacements during a strike, there's no limit to what temporary is. Right, so that you can right. see a, a lockout go on for a year, two years, five years. Yep. And there's there's a couple of cases that I recall. Um, one was Crown Oil back in the '90s was like a five year lockout. Yeah, sounds right. Yeah, again, that, that's the great uncertainty. So going back to the three factors you talked about in terms of a union assessing its bargaining power is if the employer is digging in its heels for whatever reasons in terms of its bargaining proposals, you do not know how long that labor dispute is going to last, whether it's strike or a lockout. So again, most collective bargaining negotiations end up getting resolved without a strike, but when push comes to shove, if employers are thinking either about the decision to unionize or the decision to go out on strike, they do not know how long the strike is gonna last, how long their union is willing to pay strike benefits because you're not getting paid during the strike most unions have some type of a strike fund, but it's not going to come anywhere close typically to matching the employer, the employee's wages during that dispute. So it might be 50, 100, 200 bucks a week or a month. Um, but that's not going to replace the employee's income lost during the strike. So right. they really need a careful calculus on whether or not it makes sense. So I'm, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I've got to ask this just your opinion, not legal necessarily. So back in 2012, we started seeing these fast food workers going out on strike, not unionized, although the SEIU was coordinating it. And, you know, it happened over and over and over again throughout the country, fight for 15, et cetera. Those were presumably economic strikers, right? Correct. Technically, somebody like a McDonald's or Burger King or whomever could have permanently replaced them. That's correct. And I don't know why they didn't, other than it had been probably negative publicity. But, you know, they're well announcing that they're going out on strike on whatever date, you know, for $15 an hour minimum wage for them. And it was interesting that those fast food companies didn't take a firmer position. Yeah, that's... um... That's a really interesting point because when the Fight for 15 movement sort of started, most states had minimum wage well, well below 15 bucks an hour. Even the what I'll call the more employee-friendly jurisdictions like in New York or California, their minimum wages weren't anywhere close to the $15 an hour. As that sort of campaign, you don't see as many headlines about it anymore, has continued. A lot of states have either upped their minimum wage um, more importantly, the employers have recognized that they do need to attract labor. They need to attract employees, and particularly post-pandemic, we've seen a lot of high employee turnover, um, the mass resignations, that type of thing. So employers have simply gotten smart, and they've upped their wages on their own. 
Yeah, I was in Montana last year and and uh, saw a sign at Taco Bell starting wage twenty one to twenty three dollars an hour. It's crazy. Yep. Yeah, there. Uh, you've been through the southeast, so you've probably seen the the big chain Bucky's. Oh yeah. So I've got a couple of those really big locations, but yeah, you see the starting carver, assistant manager, manager, but well above fifteen bucks an hour for even entry level positions. Yeah. Well, that, that seems to be more of a, um, more of a sign of the times in, in the lack of the labor participation rate, I guess, you know, lack of labor. So with regard to strikes, um, we're seeing a lot of non-union strikes, particularly through the pandemic. We're now seeing the big headline ones. This is the summer of strikes. I think Axios had the, as and if they wanted to, um, somebody like a UPS, if they wanted to, could replace their strikers and, you know, with much difficulty, I'm going to grant that, but there's a headline over, I guess it was on Friday that UPS is training non-union personnel, i.e. managers and supervisors to do the work as and if the strike happens. Yeah. That's interesting. Let me just throw a couple of uh, quick statistics at you. So, your listeners have a full appreciation for the sort of uptick in what I'll call worker militancy generally. Last year, at least according to one of the databases I look at, um, that there were 427 strikes last year. You go back to the last full year before the pandemic, 2019, there were only 98 strikes. And so it is a much different world, at least in terms of what employers are dealing with right now. Again. We see it typically just with high turnover or lack of ability to staff your open positions, but UPS has grown exponentially since the 97 strike. And I think the stat I saw said they'd be looking at trying to replace the work of 300,000 plus employees. And you think about the explosion of Amazon and other online businesses, Amazon does a lot of their own deliveries, but an awful lot of online retailers use UPS. So I think the article I saw this morning said they anticipate being able to make some deliveries if they were to continue operations, but it will be very challenging, I would think, for them to have enough managers or if they went down the road of uh, temporary or permanent replacements, which I'm not sure whether or not they're considering, but I just don't see how the the managerial staff themselves can keep up with that entire volume. So definitely be some type of reduced operation. So this kind of gets, excuse me, this kind of gets into like contingency planning. Um, And I saw back in earlier part of the year, FedEx basically told anybody and everybody who may be a UPS customer, if you want, you know, us to handle your work, you got to let us know by March 31st. So their doors are kind of closed to new customers. The post office, of course, can cover some of it. Um, but yeah, I, I did a very informal poll on LinkedIn and as well on Twitter. Not a lot of responses, but the vast majority have not prepared their themselves or their businesses for the potential UPS strike. And yeah. The contingency planning in my chart would normally be advising employers similar to UPS and what their contingency plan is on 
maintaining operations or limiting the damage along with having the I's dotted and T's crossed if there were any problems on the picket line. But that, that's a really important point for you. There are, are, can't even estimate the number of businesses that would be adversely impacted um, by UPS strike. So back in the early 90s, you probably remember the company RPS, Roadway Packaging Systems, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I was doing some work for them back in the mid-90s, and they ultimately were acquired by FedEx and became what is now FedEx Ground. But the uptick in demand for their services during the UPS strike doubled or tripled, and they were not adequately staffed to handle that sudden influx and new parcels being shipped and needing to be shipped. But anyone who has a business that is, is tied in any way to UPS needs to have some type of contingency plan on for either what is the replacement carrier um, and be ready for potential disruptions in that. So let me ask you, as, as an attorney that works with companies, um, and if you're going to the bargaining table and you don't need to cite any clients or anything like that, but is your advice for companies when they're going to the bar bargaining table to have a strike plan in place before you get yes. to the table? Yes. Um, as part of any bargaining preparation, again, most bargaining is resolved without resort to economic weapons, but we assess what are the employer's goals. Um, you, know, you have to take into account whether or not it's a first contract with a brand new union versus a more mature bargaining relationship, what economic or non-economic items are you going after to that are important to the employer's business, but you also want to be taking a hard look. It's just wargaming. What's the union's likely agenda going to be? What do the employees seem to be seeking? Same type of thing in terms of economic or non-economic language they're going to pursue, which are ones that the employer can probably give away, which can you get something for, which are absolute no's. And then you have to take into account, is there the possibility of a labor strike? Well, you're at the bargaining table, so that means there is a possibility of a strike. So I would definitely recommend having a contingency plan in place. And that covers the gamut we used to do back in the dark ages. We'd have giant notebooks with what the contingency plan was, and that covered everything from maintaining operations, communications, security, making sure electrical supply, water supply wasn't interrupted. Um, checklists to watch out for potential picket line misconduct. And you probably remember those days as well on the other mm -hmm. side of the fence. Well, I'm looking at the posters behind you. I don't see one for the Godfather, but I think the term that, um, at least where I used to work, the term was was based on the Godfather is going to the mattresses. Oh, there it is. That. <laughs> yeah, we had, um, so this back when I was on the uni side, but, you know, when we would have strikes, it would take us nine weeks of striking to impact the company. That's how well prepared. We'd work a ton of overtime prior to the contract expiring so that the company had enough inventory to ship while we were out on strike. And then, of course, if we didn't go out on strike, then they'd lay a bunch of people off because they had excess inventory. But when we're out on strike, and I'm going back to the 1980s, the managers and supervisors actually slept in the plant. They went to the mattresses. So... I saw some of that in the paper industry. There were some uh, companies out there that would advertise their services for permanent or temporary replacements. And 
sometimes they just didn't want to run the risk of employees actually crossing that picket line or in your case the managers or supervisors running through again you you'd hope that unions and employees would respect the ground rules in terms of not throwing nails in front of the cars not bashing cars they're going in but the reality is some strikes emotions do run high that type of misconduct has and does happen um so sometimes you simply assess does it make more sense given the nature of our operations and what we're trying to accomplish just keep everybody in house of course then that if you're using hourly employees that raises all sorts of wage hour issues as well in terms of work time non-work time that type of thing right there's a uh, strike going up on up in Erie, Pennsylvania right now that um, apparently the union found out where the replacement workers were staying and, and was out picketing in front of the hotel. Yep. So. We've seen some of that. Um, pretty common tactic is to have a staging area away from replacement operations and the employer hires buses so that everybody's in there together. But again, both sides, it's a high-risk game. So if you are walking down that path toward an inevitable labor dispute, not inevitable, but it is something both the employees and the union need to carefully calculate. It is not a spur of the moment decision. Well, they said no to us, so by God, we're walking off the job. I mean, both sides really need to assess what their contingency plans are to for the employer to maintain operations and the union's goals. Can we effectively shut down the operations? Right. They, uh, yeah, so part of that, you mentioned contingency planning on the company side. Um, from the union side, and I'm just going back 30-plus years ago, we used to tell the members, you know, every contract year, about six months ahead of time, start saving your money. You know, don't go out and make major purchases. Get your health, you know, your checkups done ahead of time because if the employer cuts off your medical insurance... Right. You got to go out and pay for it yourself. That's under COBRA. So, which is another thing on cost of striking is, you know, employers don't have to continue paying for employer employees, medical coverage, but they do have the right under COBRA. Yep, that's right. The, I was looking at one of my old sort of strike manuals, what I'll call it. So most of it's electronic now, of course. I mean, the thing is 30 pages long in terms of, Vacations have not already been pre-approved. We're not going to be granting any new ones as of the date of the request because you don't want your strikers suddenly saying they're eligible for vacation pay. Stripped of everything, the employer is with the employee is withholding his or her services. So that means they do not get a paycheck. They're not entitled to the employer's continuing contributions for 401k matches or covering health insurance premiums and that type of thing. And so uh, I'm sure you've seen in some of your campaigns, some employers like putting out sort of a piece of literature about the hidden paycheck, because yeah. what you see on your paycheck is only part of what the employer is ultimately paying for, given the rest of the benefits that the employees are receiving. That has to go into the calculation for all employees that are considering going out on strike is these are all things being provided for by my employer right now. I'm going to lose those for some length of time if we're going out on strike. Right. And most states um, don't provide unemployment compensation for strikers. Correct. There are, there are a handful now. New Jersey is weird because they just, um, they took a Supreme Court, New Jersey State Supreme Court decision and kind of codified that into the law. But 
if you're out on strike in New Jersey, you can get unemployment. It's still not going to be as much as you're making normally. Yep. yep. Uh, it's a handful of states. I think the last time I checked, it was less than five. Um, that most of the states say it's fine if you want to be involved in a labor dispute with your employer, but we're not going to help supplement that. So you're right. withholding your labor. You're not entitled to compensation. You have not been fired. Um, and employers trying to maintain its operations. So again, it is a careful calculus in terms of the the union has to assess what steps, as you said, the employer is taking to get ready for a strike, whether it's building up inventory, training managers, training in potential replacement workers, all of that needs to go into calculation. It cannot be a spur of moment decision. It is a tactical decision whether or not to use that weapon. But I'm a big military history fan. You have to think about what your opponent is doing and what their agenda, what their goal is. And your contingency plan has to take that into account. Right. Yeah. And strike pay um, for most unions, and you mentioned this a little while ago, it's usually a fraction of what your paycheck is. So right. it could be $50, could be $250, but most people make more than that. And that depends on the union. The other thing that a lot of folks don't realize when they go out on strike is you usually have to wait two weeks in order to collect strike pay, depending on the union. Yep. The, you being with the old communication workers, I don't know when you will remember, if you actually saw the Constitution, I'm sure your local union had its bylaws. 30 but plus each, years ago. There we go. Each, each union is a different animal. So all the international unions have what we call a constitution. So those are the sort of working rules of the international union covering everything from who gets to go to the convention to how the union is going to be financed by member dues. Um, the local unions within those international unions have their own set of bylaws. And that really is going to dictate what the strike benefits are and what the requirements are for you to be eligible for those strike benefits. So yes, some of them, have a two week waiting period. If it's gonna be a one week strike, I suppose they're figuring that the employee can go without those wages for that one week, but it might have requirements in terms of you have to be actively serving on the picket line. Usually, um, yeah. Yep, they have strike captains, their union officers there to check attendance to make sure the people are showing up and that's how they're gonna be eligible for their, their strike pay. We've also seen though that if the strike really drags out, those strike benefits can be cut simply because the strike is continuing to drag on and it's putting a drain on the union treasury. Well, I don't know if it's still the same as when I was with the union back 30 some odd years ago, but what I did not realize is our strike pay was supposed to be at the time, $50 a week. After two weeks, you go down the union hall, you fill it out. What I didn't realize is in the union constitution, it's essentially based on need or at least the locals based on need. So, you know, being that I was single, didn't have a mortgage payment, I walked out of the union hall with some donated cheese from one of the charities. And my uh, buddy who was also out on strike walked out with tortillas and we're going to go make quesadillas. So, yeah, that's, uh, again, depends on the internal union regulations, bylaws, right. constitution, but there, we've also seen that some of the unions will continue to take the membership dues out of the strike benefits because you still have to be an active union member. Yeah. For yeah, us, we had, to, we had to pay back dues. 
So yeah. ours, yeah. ours were retroactive dues when we got off the picket line. You know, there's an interesting thing, um, and I did the math on it, and I did a post about this, and I've I've been criticized by the union people on it. But, you know, in the press with UPS, the Teamsters allegedly have a $300 million strike fund, and they have 340,000 members that may be going out on strike. So I just did quick, simple division. I was like, wow, so they have $862 per striker if they all walk out. Spanned on how, you know, however long that lasts. <laughs> so it's, you know, and so my point to this, um, which is what happened with the Teamsters at their last convention, you know, I'm used to most unions saying you've got to be out on strike at least two weeks before you collect strike pay. Well, they just did first day of the strike. You're entitled to strike pay the first day of the strike. So that just cut off potentially two weeks worth of resources that they had were they to have a longer strike, which, you know, if they're out for a month, that's going to wipe out $300 million fairly quickly, which, which then goes to all the other strikes that they may have going on. Yep. That's a thing. I think your listeners have to take into account Teamsters are still largest or one of the largest unions out there in the United States. UPS is not their only employer. So right. they represent employees with 10 employees, 100 employees. So if a UPS strike happens and lasts any significant length of the time and for significant in terms of the nature of the business, along with the number of employees that would be affected by that, that's going to have a significant impact on the union treasurer as well. Yeah. I mean, they've they've got assets they could sell, the Marble Palace in D.C., but I doubt they will. <laughs> but so I guess a couple other quick questions. Um, as we're getting into this summer of strikes and we're starting to see more and more, uh, and a lot of them is due to the wave of organizing activity that took place, for employers out there, as they're, if well, let's go union and then non-union employers. So if you're a unionized employer and you're in first contract, a strike could happen at any time, right? There's no there's no expiration date. That's correct. Um, for non-union employers, does it help to have a contingency plan if they've got, you know, how, how does my business operate if my workers walk off the job? Because we're seeing some of this with, you know, fast food workers, retail workers? Now, the, the instances of that does happen. Um, the instances of it compared to the, what I'll call the greater union free or non-union employee population, it is still relatively rare. Um, again, most employees are unfamiliar with the National Labor Relations Board or their the rights that are protected under federal labor law. Um, where we've seen that happen a lot again, certainly during the pandemic, people seeking hazard pay, or uh, a lot of times it's been where the employees have perceived a very unsafe working condition and they simply say, we're not gonna work around that. Again, protected activity, you're walking off the job because of terms and conditions of employment, namely what you perceive as a safety hazard. But I would think, again, depending on the size of the operation, number of employees, yeah, you, you don't wanna be caught with your pants down so to speak, all of a sudden 10 of your employees 
walk off the job protesting something, and then you're scrambling to see whether your first line supervisor or your managers can handle that. How are you going to handle that situation? Um, so non-union employees do have rights under federal labor law, and it's at least something an employer needs to at least consider is, is it a possibility? And then what is our plan to maintain operations if that were to happen, even though we don't have a union there? Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking along the lines of HR folks or operations folks, just, you know, we're in a wild time right now and there's a, and we're seeing obviously this week with the actor strike and, and writer strike in Hollywood and then the UPS coming up that, you know, I would assume there's going to be some bleed over into non-union workplaces Yes, we, we saw an uptick in strike activity after the UPS one. Um, the, the Screen Actors Guild and the um, screenwriters, that's getting a lot of headlines. Certainly, the Teamster strike at UPS would as well. The other thing that's been a little bit interesting, with this sort of new era, it's certainly unprecedented in terms of the times I've been practicing as a labor attorney, definite uptick both on the union free side and union side in terms of what I'll call worker militancy generally. And that could lead to something like a suddenly a non-union employer having a group of employees walking off the job. Um, but I would expect an uptick in that, particularly if the unions end up having success in any of these labor disputes. Uh, workers, I think, already see themselves as having more bargaining power, so to speak, than they did pre-pandemic. Um, we know it's a tight labor market. We're seeing that reflected by some of the bargaining demands that are coming across the bargaining table for double-digit percent increases year by year, whereas for a long time, typical annual increase would be 2 or 3% for a wage increase. So the worker militancy we're seeing generally would not surprise me at all to see the numbers continue to go up in terms of labor disputes for the rest of the year. Yeah. Well, and I've been um, spending a lot of time studying demographics and, you know, labor participation rates and all that stuff, not just since the pandemic. Well, I guess since the pandemic, but I'm starting to see more and more headlines where this labor shortage is probably not going to go away. And you know, and in part, it's just due to the baby boomers retiring and then the, the successive generations getting smaller and smaller. So that means there's going to be economic pressure on employers for likely years to come, unless we have some, you know, great recession or big depression or something like that. Uh, you probably saw the same headlines, but uh, they were expecting the labor market to cool a little bit um, over the last couple of months, and there's been no sign of that. I mean, we're still in single digits in terms of unemployment, most of us have low threes or fours, and a lot of worker mobility because if they're not happy with the working conditions at their employer, they know there's another job out there for them. And some, some employees still are just sitting on the sideline. I read an article that there are multiple employees out there that seem to think they're going to work until they're 30 or 35, and then they plan on exiting the job market because they are not like maybe the war generation or even the baby boomers. They do not see the careers being the, the be all end all in terms of what they want to experience. 
And what do they think they're going to do after 30, 35? And who's going to pay for it? Um, don't want to speculate on that. Maybe they're buying tiny houses or <laughs> traveling the world in an RV. But uh... my uh, my go-to question is always paid for by whom? So, well, Mark, what else can we share with folks that are not familiar with labor disputes? There's strikes, union and non-union. Um, there's no requirement for an employer to agree. The strikes the bargaining power for a union, lockouts, of course. But if if we're talking to a bunch of students of labor relations, what else should we share with them? Um, I suppose the one thing we haven't touched on in depth, we referenced it uh, very early on. There is a provision in the Taft-Hartley Act, which is also part of the National Labor Relations uh, Act, but it yes. amended the it amended the Wagner Act to give the president the right to intervene in case of what they perceive as a national a strike that would create a national emergency, so to speak, uh, is not a power that has been exercised by the president all that often. We saw it in the 50s, 60s with the industry-wide coal strike or steel strike. Um, president Carter, I think in the late 70s, tried to get an injunction banning coal strike. And there was some talk about Clinton intervening during the UPS strike. That's what we referenced back in 1997, which he declined to do. Um, President Bush got an injunction when the longshoremen on the West Coast right after 9-11 went on strike. I think that strike was October 2002, and he was successful getting strike. So there is an emergency provision under federal labor law where the president can essentially appoint a board of inquiry to see whether or not the conditions would be meant for an emergency to be declared. And if that happens, they can go into court. And the courts have been, for the most part, fairly receptive of a president asking for an injunction to ban a strike and at least have people go back to work for what, what they call the cooling off period. Um, the headline you referenced, I saw the same one over the weekend or today that said the Teamsters have already made the request of the Biden administration not to intervene uh, if they end up calling a strike. And again, just purely speculation that would suggest to me, though, that they are serious about potentially taking the workers out and they believe they at least have the solidarity to try to win that strike. But given that UPS is now a much larger animal. Um, it would be interesting as to how the Biden administration, remember, President Biden said he was going to be the most pro-union president ever. So I would think if the Teamsters are asking him not to get involved, he's going to listen to that. Right. So um, let's kind of like back up for a second, because I, I, we had emailed back and forth about Taft-Hartley a little bit. So there is a provision that is part of the Taft-Hartley Amendments or Taft-Hartley Act, which amended the National Labor Relations Act of 1947, that allows the President of the United States to intervene in labor disputes that could impact the national economy. Right. Right. So the the calls specifically um, would be potentially, as an UPS or the teams are strike UPS, people start saying, Mr. President, you know, you need to stop the strike because it's affecting our business. He does have the power to do that. Correct. The, 
there are certain conditions that have to be met. Um, uh, it's all in the statute. If I want to go back and <laughs> actually read, God forbid, the National Labor Relations Act, but um, it has to be truly a, an industry-wide or most of an industry um, that's going to be shut down, and it has to present what the president views as after his board of inquiry, which is typically just him getting a couple advisors. When President Bush tried, got the injunction on the West Coast, I think Donald Rumsfeld, who was then the head of the Department of Defense, he said opposed a national emergency due to the war on terrorism, and the West Coast ports were used in part to ship military hardware. But they have to at least present it to the court as truly being a national emergency such that it makes sense for the court to issue an injunction barring that strike for a certain period of time. And the language is pretty broad in terms of industry-wide strike and public emergency or public health threatened. Um, but again, the courts have been fairly receptive to most presidents when they've sought one of those. But again, it's pretty rare. Again, I think maybe 35 injunctions and take into account that the Taft-Hartley amendments were passed in 1947, specifically in response to what was seen as unions gaining too much power between 1935 and 1947. So the Taft-Hartley amendments put some restrictions on unions. They added union unfair labor practices, um, banned secondary boycotts, and some other types of tactics that unions sometimes used and granted the president this authority to confront the national emergency. It's choose right to work laws or allowed right to work laws to be passed in states, et cetera. Correct. Yeah. The um, side note, the PRO Act undoes a lot of the Taft-Hartley provisions as if that ever gets passed. Yeah. You and I have been around the block a few times. You can see I have a little more gray hair from uh, when we were first working together. And I'm not sure if that's due to my 18 year old or due to the job or a combination of Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But back during the, Clinton administration, there was a comparable comparable legisla- legislation going through in terms of card check recognition and all that. So we did lots of training, and then it never got through the right. Senate. And I think most folks are fairly, at least on the union side, are fairly pessimistic about the PRO Act actually becoming law as well. Right. Well, Mark, anything else we should share? Um, I think we've covered the major buckets. The... Ultimately, strike, I'm going to put out in a side bucket the non-union employees suddenly surprising their employer and walking off the job for some reason because it's a little bit of a different animal. Um, But from my perspective, historically, a strike has meant something has broken down in the bargaining process. The... Now, it might be that either the union or the employer has a certain advantage and both sides are simply digging their heels. That happens. It is a negotiation. So each side is trying to negotiate whatever they believe their best deal is. And sometimes you reach a position where things are intractable. But vast majority of collective bargaining negotiations uh, are resolved without a strike. But that is because those are mature relationships. The parties know each other. Uh, they've had a collective bargaining agreement for 20 or 30 years. And so you're really not tinkering too much with the language. Both parties have a realistic expectation of what the economic proposals are going to be. Um, so that's why so many of those 
collective bargaining negotiations are resolved without a strike, but it is a much different animal for a first contract where you are negotiating every single clause of a 50 page or a 100 page collective bargaining agreement. And for the first time, really sitting down and negotiating what are the wages and the benefits going to be. And it's not unusual for workers to have been promised a lot of things by the union that is now representing them, whether or not the union can or is going to try to deliver on the promises that were made during the campaign can affect how those negotiations end up going. You know, it, you raised um, another side note that you, you're you talking about economics, but the thing that, um, especially first-time negotiations, that is negotiating for the first time the language of the contract. So you've got your two buckets of economics and language. And a lot of workers don't realize that economics and first negotiations are usually the last thing you talk about. Correct. So not unusual for both parties to agree. We're going to resolve all non-economic issues first. Then we'll turn to the economic issues. Um, Unions are used to doing it that way. Companies are used to doing it that way, particularly in the mature bargaining relationship. But think about all the things that encompass those really big buckets of terms and conditions of employment. That's uh, starting and stopping times. Are, are we using seniority? What's that seniority look right. like? Is it date of hire for the facility? Is it by a department if you're in a manufacturing facility? Um, equal employment opportunity language, very common. Are we going to have a grievance procedure? What's that going to look like? How many steps? And so every word, every comma, every period has to be hashed out. So you're negotiating at the table. You're both sides are given written proposals back and forth. This is how we want seniority to work. No, we don't want it that way. We want it by department. And you're trying to reach a compromise. So that's why first contract negotiations, not unusual for those to go significantly longer because of the number of things you have to negotiate over. Right. Whereas in Just, a mature relationship, you're not going to change the seniority system significantly. Yeah. Although you could talk about language, it's usually not a major factor. Sure. That, you know, does the union get a bulletin board? If so, where does HR get to approve or not approve? Who gets the key to the lock on the bulletin board? <laughs> it's, I, I had an attorney many, many years ago explaining how he was negotiating a contract. Now I don't even remember the union, but they had been at the table for like 10 months and they had agreed to bulletin boards and I think like union access to the plant. There's, you know, 10 months of it. Well, um, Starbucks is actually a good example of that. The union has had considerable success with this store-by-store organizing. Um, But at least to my knowledge, I don't think they've reached a collective bargaining agreement with at any of the individual stores that have been recognized since the pandemic. Have you been following that? Yep. The Starbucks thing. It's interesting because um, the union, Workers United, fought at the National Labor Relations Board to have single store bargaining units, won the single store bargaining unit issue with the board, and now wants to revert to more of a national or regional collective bargaining. Yep. Uh, they want their cake to eat it and eat it. Yeah, too. I've, I've seen some of those same references. And again, Caution for employees generally, going back to the three factors you listed in terms of a union assessing its bargaining power, which is based on can they strike, 
can they strike effectively and what's the employer's response to the strike going to be in terms of maintaining its operations. Um, this is not to denigrate the Starbucks workers, but they simply are not going to have a lot of bargaining power given the size of Starbucks right. for a single site. Um, either not everyone's going to recognize a picket line if you throw it up at a single store, or there are going to be other folks that are willing to be trained as baristas run that. And it's a complicated operation, um, a lot of things to learn, but likely people willing to take those jobs. Starbucks has historically been known as a fairly progressive employer. So the union changing its tactics in terms of what it thinks now is a ideal bargaining unit being more of a regional, likely intended to try to have some weapon that can put more pressure on Starbucks as an employer. But that would, that's me speculating. No, well, I, I get the strategy, except I don't know that they can legally do it if they got the board to approve single-store units. Agreed. That that seems problematic. Yeah, that, that would be the uh, proverbial <laughs> unring the bell. Right. <laughs> yeah. Just, huh. I don't know that they thought that through enough. But. Well, Mark, how can people get hold of you? I'm going to put oh, the links uh, up on the under the audio portion of this. Yep. Uh, I appreciate that. I'm a partner in the Atlanta office of Barnes and Thornburg. I believe uh, a few episodes ago, you had one of my other partners, Dave Przybilski, on as well. We've got uh, a very experienced labor and employment team. And presumably with this one, you can put up the links to my bio. I'm on LinkedIn and uh, a web search is going to pull me up. But been practicing labor and employment law for 30 plus years now. Back when you had dark hair. Always been pleased to work with you as well. (laughs) Well, thanks for coming on Labor Relations Radio. Peter, always a pleasure to see you, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk with your audience. So that was Mark Keenan, a partner with the law firm Barnes & Thornburg. He is out of their Atlanta office, and as I mentioned during the episode, I'm going to leave a link to his bio under the audio portion of this episode, as well as a link to the law firm. As in, if you have any questions, if you want to reach out on Twitter, you can reach us at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. And that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. Have a great week. Thanks for tuning in. I don't want to waste my You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.